everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where each week we have a look back at the news and guests from Luxembourg or more internationally bring us their wisdom on a whole range of topics. I hope as always you've had a wonderful week wherever you're listening from. So today my guests are, as always, the lovely Sasha Keogh, newsreader from the Samstein Show. I also have Dr. Arno Gutleb and Elizabeth Schilling, who is a dancer and choreographer, and Dr. Jessica Levy from SOS Detresse. Such a packed show for you, so we're going to dive straight in uh, with Sasha and a look back at the news. Sasha, I've been listening to you all week on the news and again, gosh, the news doesn't get any lighter, does it? <laughs> No, it's it's again. Yes, it's 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 a heavy news week. Um, yes, I mean, just we need to mention. I think that we're recording it on Friday and today, and in fact, very shortly, we're expecting um, President Putin to officially annex these four regions of Ukraine. Um, they held referendums last week, and so surprise, called, surprise, so called referendums. Yes, surprise, yeah. surprise. They have a ninety-nine percent uh, vote in 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 favor of joining Russia. And the the they will sign it today in in Moscow, um, which is a big step. I mm. mean, the West is watching very with, yeah. very nervously. And when you look at the map, you just see that that red stripe down the east coast of Ukraine, all the way down yes. to Crimea. So yes. it's uh, it's a terrible situation. But um, yeah, we'll see what happens there. Uh, connected to that uh, is the Nord Stream pipeline situation, um, sabotage or. Leaking for other reasons, we're not sure yet, but there's a lot of it and it's a terrible situation for the climate. Yes, that's absolutely true. So there, there are four leaks uh, that have been discovered so far and uh, a lot of countries are assuming that it is sabotage. Uh, for example, a country like Norway that we are now very much relying on for, for gas um, have announced uh, increased security m- around their pipelines. So I, I, it's a very tense situation. And of course, for, yes, climate-wise, it is absolutely appalling because this uh, methane gas that is, that is leaving the pipeline, they, they, they estimate is the equivalent of 1.3 million cars on the road per year. And methane is the, the biggest um, polluter after carbon dioxide and actually it's a more potent um yeah I'm, I'm <laughs> yes sign, exactly i think sign, we should move it, move it, over it, to it, the it is actually more potent than carbon dioxide as as um uh, gas in the atmosphere isn't that right dr arna yeah, I'm not an expert on this, but I read in the newspapers yeah. it's about 80 times more potent than yeah, CO2. Yeah, I, I, I was a chemist a long time ago and I remember always that methane is worse than carbon dioxide, but we usually don't have as much of it, apart from when we have uh, <laughs> pipelines well, These uh, are vast leaking. numbers that we're talking yeah. about, aren't we? And, yeah. and of course, there, there was no plan to contain the gas at any point, should there be a leak, which I find very surprising, considering, uh, you know, these pipelines must have always been uh, vulnerable yeah um but that yeah there's there's no plan b so that, yeah it's a really really good point you're just making there you know what what is the the risk and uh, how would you combat that risk if it were ever well we can see it's happening right now well let's move to something completely different as they say chess and cheating <laughs> so this 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 story really appealed to me. Yeah, um, I, I can see you smiling over there. <laughs> um, you know, not not since uh, Bobby Fischer beat um, the, the the Russian Boris Baskiki fifty years ago has chess been back in the news like this? Uh, it's so so. 
uh, basically the the current world champion, the Norwegian grandmaster uh, Carlsen, has accused an American teenager, Hans Niemann, of of cheating, um, and it's it's just exploded as a mm-hmm. story. I think it really appeals to to ev- everyone because it's not just a matter of cheating, but also there's been public accusations. There are conspiracy theories. I mean, I immediately said. How how do you cheat? Well, that's, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> how do you cheat? What was the... Because I haven't read all of the details of the story. What was the cheating episode? Well, the the, the point was that the that Carlson, who is the world champion, f- felt that uh, the uh, Niemann wasn't really concentrating and seemed he's much lower ranked and wasn't really concentrating. And so he just l- resigned after one move. Um and he had obviously had suspicions that he had cheated in the past. He's now tweeted it all in public. And as I say, it has risen, uh, give, given rise to fantastic conspiracy theories. I mean, from from this man, uh, you know, having um, anal beads uh, in which were vibrating, oh telling him what God. the next move was. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you couldn't make it up. Wow. Well, moving swiftly on from <laughs> anal beads, <laughs> well, to food waste. <laughs> food waste in Luxembourg. Food waste yes, in Luxembourg. Very easy segue, isn't yes. it? <laughs> Goes in one and out the other. Um, yes. So it would appear that, uh, well, I, I think this doesn't come as a big surprise that a lot of people in Luxembourg waste an enormous amount of food. So there was a new survey done uh, yesterday, so on Thursday, that 91% of Luxembourgers do admit to uh, wait, you know, throwing away some food at the end of the week. And a lot of people also uh, admitted that they don't necessarily know the difference between a sell-by date and a use-by date. Yes. So, yes. Uh, you know, as soon as they see the uh, sell-by date passing out in their fridge, then the, the food gets thrown away. I would say on that point, sometimes, because <laughs> my daughter's at the monitors of this, because I, I leave things quite a long time, uh, until I think they really do need to be thrown out. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's not always easy to see those dates, particularly on cans or tins. or it, It's more obvious usually on, on, let's say, salad or something in, in the fridge, but it's not always obvious where those dates are. Well, there's going to be a whole campaign in schools to make it more obvious, apparently, to, to pe- young people in particular, who I think are the worst offenders of, of throwing food out. Ah, it might be. Well, it, it certainly is that case in my house. I actually get worried when I buy things and they never go off, like perishables, what should be a perishable thing, like a piece of fruit or a vegetable, and they look Just like... Just don't go off. <laughs> that, that also worries me. <laughs> yes, I notice when I, I make bread. And it goes off in a day. And then when you buy bread and it kind of like never, ever goes mouldy. And you think, OK, there is something, there's a big difference here. And occasionally you can cut apples and they don't ever turn brown. That also concerns me sometimes. Another Luxembourg story. We have another um, grand ducal couple. They are going to have their second child, hopefully, in April. Yes, so that was announced yesterday. Um, and yes, it will be the sixth grandchild for the Grand Duke and um, their, their second child in, in 10 years. So I think generally people, people like good news, good, like royal news in Luxembourg. It's always yeah. nice to end on a, on a positive note and babies always bring a smile to most people's I, faces. Exactly, I think yeah. so. And, yeah. and uh, the current uh, 
Prince Charles, their, their current sort of only child, you know, I, I think might maybe take the pressure off that little boy for a bit because he is photographed wherever he goes. You know, if he's going to the Parc Mevier to stroke a couple of uh, little panda bears, <laughs> it's photographed or his first step. So I think that's quite nice. It is, although I think he probably has a nicer and more gentle life here than he would in other countries being part of the royal family. Yes, absolutely. So um, that's lovely news for Princess Stephanie. We wish her all the best in her pregnancy. Hopefully it'll be a gentle and easy one and uh, because it's not easy being pregnant with a toddler. <laughs> yes, I don't I don't know whether she had before, you know, I remember Princess uh, Kate Middleton, she she had terrible uh, morning sickness, sickness, morning sickness, yeah. didn't she? But yeah. I, I've never heard anything like that We haven't like heard those here, no. stories, so very robust. <laughs> we can never tell what will happen to us in our pregnancies. It's like uh, another species inside us at time. <laughs> anyway, those days are long gone for me. Sasha, no, not at all. As always, thank you so much. Oh, and how was your little boat trip? We must ask you. How was the overnight ferry last weekend when you were taking your your son to university in Durham? Oh, I loved it. Um, I, I haven't done an overnight ferry, so I, I was selling this as a as a cruise, really. And um, yeah, I arrived, and I was not disappointed. I have to say that I went to see a film. Oh. I had I went to the buffet, all you can eat. I realised that we were not professionals because other people were in there for hours. And there was a disco, there was a band. I, I, I genuinely, it felt like a cruise. Oh my goodness, I love this. You're selling this idea of environmentally friendly travel as well. Oh, my yes. dad was always a fan of the ferry. We would always get the ferry, because he hated. He, he was terrified of planes, actually. That was the reason. But yeah. um, we would always get the ferry from Ireland to England back in the day. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, it is a long, I mean, it's a long time spent travelling. It takes us 24 hours to, you know, to get from here to there. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for a short weekend. <laughs> no, it's... It, the, the travel is part of the, uh, the experience. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Well, we wish you a lovely weekend, Sasha, with your family, with walks around the Moselle region, with lots of sleep. And um, and we'll be chatting to you again very, very soon. Thank, Thank you. you so See much. See you next Sasha. week. Thank Bye. you. The Lisa Burke Show. Well, now, uh, following on from that, I would really love to introduce you to my guests today. And, and what a, an array of guests I have. We're going to start with you, Arno, Arno Christian Gutleb. And I've now learned that Gutleb means good life as a surname. What a wonderful, wonderful surname to have. He's group leader uh, for the environmental health at the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology, LIST, and developing in vitro assays uh, focused on the alveolar region of the lung with a focus on inflammation and respiratory sensitization. But in fact, you have such an incredible CV. You've moved from veterinary medicine, actually, in Vienna, Austria, to environmental sciences PhD in the Netherlands. Uh, now, you told me how to pronounce this, but I'm going to ask you again. It's Wageningen. Yes, that university. <laughs> that university. University of Wageningen. Yeah. Um, and, and so many other places. You're a distinguished professor at the University no, I'll give this a go. Julio Hatsiegu. Uh, no, I, I didn't. Julio Hatsiegano. Oh, thank you. In thank Jewish you. Romania. Yes, in Romania and also at the Universidad Andres Bello in Santiago de Chile. I can I can manage that one. So it's wonderful to have you here. We've also got Elizabeth Schilling, who is a dancer and choreographer. And we've also got Dr. Jessica Levy, who is a psychologist and is going to talk to us about um, SOS Detresse. So welcome to you all. Wonderful to have you here. Starting with you, Arno. Now, what's amazing about your work is that your group have developed a way to replace 
animal experiments by self, cell culture, I should say. So talk us through that therapy, that prevention, without having to test on animals, how you can do that in vitro in the lab. That's a complex question, <laughs> and in a way it's a simple question. We all know that in the past we did animal experiments, uh, we know today that animal experiments give, on average, in toxicology, a correct answer in only 60% of the cases. So we trust science, but in fact, it's only 60% correct. Now, I know that we can do it better with cell culture-based assays, which usually come up to over 90%. That's incredible. Moving back to the animals on that 60%, which I didn't know, which animals gave the best results? Uh, I, I don't think we can say it's a certain species. Uh, you may remember the story with the Thalidomid contagon in German in the early 60s when babies were born without arms and fingers. And that was because the test species they used, the red, is absolutely insensitive to this chemical. Thalidomide. Now, yes. Thalidomide. Now today we test in two species because if they would have tested in rabbits, they are sensitive, they would have seen it. So testing in two species increases safety and we also have to differentiate between testing for drugs, for example, and testing for chemicals, testing for cosmetics, where since 2013 in Europe, no animal tests are allowed anymore. Yeah, because in fact, there's so much more work you do, and I didn't mention it, but you are also, uh, since 2020, the co-chair of the US-EU nano-EHS regulation It's a working group, you're right. This is a working group connecting American and European scientists working in the field of nanomaterials. Which is everything that we, you know, we absorb so many nanomaterials that we're not even conscious of. Even standing here, there will be things around we're absorbing. Yes, I mean, we are, there are nanoparticles in the air, and but there are also many natural nanoparticles. You take a walk in the forest, you inhale pieces from the trees. Yes. So it's, it's, a long, it's a long story, but of course today we add man-made nanomaterials. Absolutely, and of course many of us suffer from asthma or allergies or other issues due to materials which we inhale, and I know this is a focus for your research group as well. So can you talk us through how your work and what you can develop in vitro, in assays and not on animals, can help us. Yeah, I think everybody knows somebody who has uh, asthma or, or similar problems upon exposure to certain chemicals. Now, the problem today for industry, and I have to say really industry in this case is really innocent, there is no animal experiment available. So they don't even have the possibility of having a 60% correct animal experiment. What we can offer now, we have developed a cell culture model. It uses four different cell types from humans. It's human cancer cell lines. They are commercially available. And we combine them in a very unique way. And they give us an answer whether a new chemical is going to be an irritant, a sensitizer, or completely innocent. So we can help now industry very early in product development to decide which chemicals to use and which chemicals to maybe abolish from the product development. But how do you do that when everybody has a different reaction? We are not all the same. That's correct. We cannot, con- how to say, correct for individual sensitivities, uh, which from a regulatory point of view is also not necessary because that's more a yes or no answer. It's a chemical sensitizer. 
then it comes in a own chem, uh, category in, in respect to regulation. There are potentially ways, and we think about how to test for individuals to determine their individual sensitivity, but that's a, still a long way to go. And just thinking about something like um, washing um, detergent, I know that a lot of people are allergic to fabric softener when they wash their clothes, for example, one example. Um, but we don't know that till we try it. And when somebody, a company, puts a product on the market, what regulations do they have to go through right now before it's taken off the shelf? Um, if it's for a washing material, it's not a cosmetic, meaning they have, they have to test it. But for skin, we do have excellent, uh, again, cell-based models. Well, it sort of is skin because you're putting all of the fabrics on your skin. Yes, and, but for skin, we can test. So skin is, I think, also from practically not done anymore in animals because we have very good skin models that are commercially available and people use it. Mm-hmm. And y- your your work focuses very much on what goes into the lungs. Yes, correct. Because when I came to Luxembourg, there was this huge increase 15 years ago of nanomaterials. How are we exposed, of course, during inhalation at work, during inhalation as a co- customer? That's why. And there was nothing available. So that made us start to think. So now we had several PhDs, postdocs, EU projects that led us all the way to have a kind of final product. Not only that, you've got a spin-off as well. So congratulations on that. You can tell us a little bit about that company that's just launching. Yeah, thank you on that. Uh, You were actually there when it was announced in June on our tech day from List. Yeah, we have a spin-off that will commercialize these these lung cell models. Uh, we offer this service to, to industries. It just started. Uh, I will be fully functional in January. And um, it's an interesting period in, in my life. And yeah, it's a very big challenge interesting. and a life-changing event. Well, congratulations to you and all of the team's research and hard work over so many years. Um, when it has come to all the research that you and your group have done over many years. What worries you? What should we as individuals, not knowing everything you know, what should we be concerned about in our environment? Um, That's actually something older than what we talk now. Now we talk about nano and chemicals. I am still concerned about what we call the legacy chemicals. We still have DDT outside. We still have chemicals called polychlorinated bifenyls outside. Flame retardants, they accumulate in fat. Uh, they accumulate in the fat of, of milk. So we transfer them to our babies. We take them up by eating fat fish. Uh, we know that from some areas fat fish can be high polluted. So we have mercury uh, in fish. So I personally have have some dietary restrictions. I don't eat certain fish species. Tell us what they are so that we can just be mindful of it. I think tuna is one of them you're going to mention. Yes, if you talk about mercury, the big the big tuna steak is maybe an issue because even if they are below the the levels allowed for marketing for humans, they are still the highest polluted fish when it comes to mercury. So sad, really sad. And other fish, I think swordfish is another one of them. Not that that's the most common fish. You're well informed. (laughs) Actually, funnily enough, there are a list of fish you shouldn't eat when you're pregnant. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's also an excellent BBC documentary, probably even available online on fish and fish consumption, where they compare hair and people eating and what they eat. Yeah. And what other dietary restrictions do you have then, which has been informed by your own science? Uh, I would reduce salmon. Salmon is a very fat fish growing in partly polluted fjords, so 
once a week or once every two weeks salmon is definitely enough. Don't eat more than that, I would propose. And you also mentioned milk and uh, milk being uh, pretty easy to take up some of these uh, long-term yeah, legacy chemicals. You, I mean, it, yes, but that's more the, the human milk and there's nothing to do. And we know that the, the, <laughs> mother, milk is, the mother milk <laughs> is better for the baby than anything else. Uh, so the risk benefit is definitely on the side of using mother milk and the product is not good. But when you say milk, I come back to what Sasha said and the expiry date of milk products, you can eat yogurt easily up to one month after this date because milk products you can taste. Nothing will happen if it's rotten. You will taste or smell and you will not become sick. So I would recommend to eat yogurt until it doesn't <laughs> taste nice anymore and not throw it because of the date. Perfect. Well, I'm a full believer in that. And it's definitely what I do in my house against much retaliation from my own family. But it's definitely what I believe in. Um, slightly related, in fact, very related to what you do, um, I think. And it's another growing issue is the fact that the biomedical research for male and females has not been present <laughs> for a long time. Most things were um, tested on men, <laughs> not for women, but we don't have the same biologies. Um, so talk us through what's happening there. That's a very interesting topic. Uh, you know, we start, I mentioned thalidomide. So, and because of this, that was the moment when it was decided uh, to, to test only in healthy males simply to avoid that uh, unborn babies or even eggs are exposed to any chemicals. So what we do until the end of the 1990s was we test everything in healthy young men. Uh, and then we find out that drugs on the market in the US, for example, the main reason that drugs that are already on the market have to be withdrawn are unknown side effects in women. Mm -hmm. So it's also a lot of money that the companies have to invest. So now we see a kind of paradigm shift If you do animal experiments, you have to use both species. If you only use one, uh, you really get questions by ethical committees. Why only one? So we have to consider sex as, a, as an important or maybe the most important parameter when we do research on safety. Yeah, and not just that. We even saw through COVID times that people from different backgrounds um, were affected by COVID in different ways. So we have genetical, cultural, well, genetic backgrounds that uh, affect the way in which we react to things as well. There is even a very interesting detail that most of us probably have never read about. Uh, you know, humans, Homo sapiens and Neanderthal have interbred some 50, 60, 70,000 years ago. And there are people that carry a certain gene coming from Neanderthal ancestors that changes the vulnerability to COVID. Oh, so people with uh, more Neanderthal in them, are they more susceptible to COVID or less? It's not more or less. It's one very specific one. Oh. We, we, we all have Neanderthal genes. The European has about 1% to 2-3% of Neanderthal genes. Every man that has back on his shoulders has a Neanderthal gene to have a hair Every man who has... Hair on the shoulders. This is a, a Neanderthal gene. <laughs> <laughs> so probably some of your boyfriend's husbands have Neanderthal gene. <laughs> It's a very easy to find. Oh my goodness, you can spot them in the swimming pools. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Actually, I visited a site in France around the Cognac region in the summer where they're, where they're looking into that right now. And they're also, in fact, looking into the role of females in the Neanderthal world. It's, it's obviously really, really hard to research because 
<laughs> it was a long time ago and it's hard to find these things, but it is it's super fascinating. So with all of the work that you've done then, I mean, you were a vet by training, even though you, as you mentioned to me, you didn't work a day in your life as a vet, but you're now doing all this fantastic work to replace animal experimentation. Do you feel proud of your work? Yeah, I think it has a meaningful contribution to the society. And as a father of four, grandfather of three, I think it's very, very important to do something. So protecting my children, I protect also all the children. So that's kind of the driving force for my work. But you also protect the animals. Yes. So it's win-win. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Arno, we wish you all of the best with your continued research and congratulations on this spin-off company, which is going to help so many people in the future. Again, Thank you for having please. me here. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, I'm very happy to have Elizabeth Schilling with us here today, despite the fact that you have to race back and do more dancing. She is, of course, a dancer, choreographer and has, well, developed so many transdisciplinary projects with movement, design, visual arts and music with international teams. You have performed all around the world, but since 2021, you're artist in residence at the Trifolian in Echternach and since 2022, associate artist at Théâtre de la Ville de Luxembourg. Such a great pleasure to have you with us, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. And I would like you to start off by telling us about the show that's coming up next weekend. Yeah, so Ita Infinita is uh, the show that we are currently rehearsing and it is to premiere next week on Friday, uh, 7th of October uh, at the Echter Classic Festival at the Trifolion. It is a show uh, which choreographically interprets the first partita of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, but I've also written an improvisation score for the violin, which also is performed as part of this partita to combine really the past and the present. And uh, so, yeah, we, we work a lot with music and how music and dance is interconnected. Um, but I'm also interested in this show, how different nature textures can interweave in the dancing and how basically the show is all about how we in, how we are interconnected with nature and culture and humans and plants. <laughs> because you bring so many elements together. That's what's so wonderful about your choreography. You're always bringing, I mean, obviously dance has always been connected to music and, and the, the costumes have been a part of it, but you use the costumes often mm. as part of, a part of the performance. Yeah. And, and the first time I saw you, it was at a TED talk with 20 metres of felt material. So when you were using that material or when you use material, what do you think about? Well, I think I'm quite interested in um, how certain shapes around the body or certain materials around the body changes the human shape and how this can open um, our own, the viewer's imagination to new horizons, let's say, new rooms, new spaces that we might have not known before. Um, so, yeah, I, I think all my work is all about just opening spaces in our minds and our imagination and uh, stimulating new experiences. Your life as a dancer, talk us through it from childhood, because the, the life of a dancer can be quite short. Mm, that's true. Well, I think my mom always said that I always used to dance as a toddler and at some point she just asked me if I wanted to go to ballet class because that was what was, you know, around in, in my the, the town that I grew up in. And so I went to ballet class and I think I immediately fell in love with it. Um, and I knew quite early on that I wanted to be a professional dancer. Tried to convince my parents, which was a bit of a better crowd to start with. And I had this really strong intuition from a really early age that I had just had to leave because I come from a really rural area where there were no opportunities to really grow artistically 
So I left quite early, went to ballet school, and then had this huge privilege to train in London. And I started to, you know, um, get to know the world of contemporary art and contemporary dance in London, which really curved my path as a dancer. And yes, the, I think, yes, the life of a dancer is short, but, you know, it's also incredibly intense. So I think um, I'm not sure if you can actually sustain that career for like 40 years. It's impossible, I think, uh, for the mind and for the body. So most dancers, in my experience, almost dance for like 10, 12, 15 years, but then they transition into different jobs, not necessarily because they couldn't dance longer, but just because it's uh, not sustainable on so many levels. It's so hard. You have to keep your body. Well, you're an athlete, effectively. You're, you're yeah. training at the top level. Yeah. What does that do to the body? Well, lots of things. I think like being a dancer is so much more than physical, first of all. So it obviously is physical, but it's so mm, psychological. It's very mental. It's, you know, like I used to be a freelance dancer. So especially nowadays in the current economics, um, you jump from one project to the next the Monday you start a new project, you don't know who you're working with, what they expect of you, what they're pulling out of you. So it has a lot to do with jumping into the unknown and um, finding yourself anew all the time, finding new colors in yourself all the time, which I've always found an incredibly wonderful challenge. It's obviously very scary, but you, I think you can experience and find a lot. Um, yeah, I hope that answered your question. It, it, it certainly <laughs> does. You, you, you're basically saying you're living a life where you have to be mentally tough enough to withstand mm -hmm. the unknown all of the time. You can't be guaranteed that check at the end of the week unless you are working with a company. Yeah, I'd say I'd say so. Also, it's a different thing if you work for a full-time company where the, your structure is always always the same. But I chose to be freelance because mm -hmm. that just fits my character more. Yeah. <laughs> and so I also very much enjoy jumping into the unknown. So and you've transitioned very successfully from being mainly a dancer and choreographer to now being mainly a choreographer and dancer mm -hmm. the other way around. So when it comes to developing choreography, how do you do it? How, where do you start? Talk us through the process. Mm, uh, so I think every process is really different. Sometimes you... You just have an interest, a curiosity. Sometimes it's all about a huge love. Like, for example, I, um, the early pieces that I made, I was just really interested in the fusion of visual art and dance or sculpture and dance or materials and movement. Um, but, for example, the last groupies I made here is Move Dances with Ligeti. Um, that was a response to an incredible passion of mine, to the music of Georgi Ligeti, who's my favorite composer, who's uh, my biggest inspiration also in dancing. So that was an, yeah, a big love. And now this new pieces was um, I think um, partly a curiosity a challenge to face a music that I was not so much in love with to be honest with you <laughs> so I'm more of a uh, um, um, I feel quite strongly for contemporary composers but I find Bach much harder um, to work with but I wanted to face that challenge because obviously Johann Sebastian Bach is the so-called father of all western music so I wanted to really explore and understand what his music was about and also explore the relevance of this today or how in movement um, yeah we we could uh, find the relevance of this through dancing nowadays yeah and we're about to hit another economic crisis and you mentioned it a little bit before about uh, the financial hardship that dancers sometimes face how do you get people in to see the work well <laughs> I'm quite interested in that question um, because I think contemporary dance is such a young art form. It's only about maybe 100 years old. So I definitely feel the responsibility of creating access um, for people to this art form, not necessarily through the art itself, but through um, different strategies of how to invite them in. Um, how to get people into the venues is 
first of all, something to do with what the venue is. Like the Conteatres, for example, is very established. They have their audiences. Um, but I'm personally quite passionate about touring to rural areas or to places where contemporary dance doesn't have uh, recognition at all or people might not know at all what this is. And um, yeah, and for those kind of areas or venues, I like to really think about strategies of how to invite people in, um, going to places like community centers or even senior homes, children's homes, um, going to them rather than expecting them to come, come to us. And I try to really meet them from human to human, to really have that conversation um, I think because dance doesn't communicate in linear ways, mm -hmm. which we are so used to in our society, I try to take the fear away from them by initiating conversations about what they've seen, uh, to just ask them questions like, what was your favorite moment? Which associations did come up? Um, and I try to give them the security that whatever they've seen is correct and right, because so many times I hear like we didn't understand the dance and I say look there's nothing to be understood we are not in school it's not about being right or wrong it's not better or worse it's like dance has nothing to do with those kind of dualities uh, and I think that's also why I'm in this art form because in dance there's just no opposition as such in my opinion yeah as opposed to science where sometimes people think there is a right and wrong <laughs> logic there um, you mentioned all people's homes and uh, it's something that's in my mind and I spoke to you earlier about my mother going back to rock classes which I'm so happy about because she loves dance um, but you know didn't have the opportunities that y you had to train or anything like that um, and, and often people think oh, you need a certain type of body to be a dancer and it can be very tough on young girls as well uh, mentally we'll come to this in a moment but mentally how do you cope as a dancer because you know we have eating disorders all over the place uh, for normal teenage girls who are not dancers so what is it like as a female in the dance world? Pretty tough. <laughs> well, I'd say, well, first of all, it's a profession that you have to start in quite young. Um, it all depends on what the expectations of yourself are in this. So when I started out um, in Germany, we don't have like, like you have in the UK, those creative classes or youth dance companies where really a different image is, uh, you know, stimulated. So all I knew was the classical form. So my way into dance was through the classical. So obviously, in order to train in that field, you have to fit that certain ideal, uh, which is a very skinny female body, not too tall, not too small, etc. Um, so yeah, so that that's tough to really fit yourself in there. Um, I think in the last year something has been changing, especially in the contemporary dance world, which is great. Uh, but I think we're still not where we could be. And I'm not just talking about male or female bodies, but I'm also talking about disabled bodies. Or, and it's not only physical again. It's really like, um, you know, we have people who don't learn as quickly as other people. We have people who are dyslexic. You know, we have people with so many different talents. And sometimes being a dancer also means being a machine. And I'm wondering, it's breaking Like it's starting to break, especially in the freelance world. But I'm also wondering how we can um, recognize the talents that e every individual brings into a group, um, especially in terms of age as well. <laughs> like um, elderly, oh, no, I don't want to say elderly, but well, that's what I wanted yeah. to move on to because you're saying that the dancing life ends at about 15 years at max, mm. you know, um, but you've got so much talent within your bodies and not just that. How can you encourage all of us as we get older to move our bodies? And so many people love moving their bodies mm. to music. So how can that be encouraged as we all age as a society? 
Well, I mean, in, in my company, we try very different formats um, of, you know, art in public spaces, which encourage movement or creative thinking or both together. Or, for example, also next week when we are touring to the senior homes or the to, to the children's homes, we're not only showing the performance, but it's also part of a movement workshop. But in the end, it all comes down to just daring and just doing it. I think if it's if we're talking about the individual, I think just putting the radio on and dancing in the kitchen or whatever. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> No, when we'll, no one is watching. I think that's fantastic. And uh, I'm going to try and do a bit more of that at home as well. <laughs> I have to shift my dials from being a, an absolute podcast listener or audiobook listener to uh, some more music and, uh, and dance the night away. Thank you so much. And we encourage everybody to go and see your show and all of the other shows as well at the Trifolion in Echternach next weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. Now, my next guest is Dr. Jessica Levy, who is a psychologist uh, and is working at SOS Detresse in charge of the new telephone support line in English. Wonderful to have you here to talk about this, uh, the new addition to your line. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about SOS Detresse, first of all. So SOS Detresse is there to help anyone who needs a conversation, who needs someone to talk to. And we can do this in a very confidential, anonymous way. So you don't have to tell us your name. You don't have to have to tell us any personal detail. You don't have to take an appointment. You can just call and talk. And we are there to listen. And up to now, it's been available in what languages? So the usual Luxembourg national languages, Luxembourgish, German, French. Yeah, and we're adding English now as of Wednesday next week. Exactly. So our new English line will open on Wednesday. And from now on, we will then be available every Wednesday from 11 in the morning until 11 in the evening. When you've been uh, working at SOS Tres and of course your own work as a psychologist, what are the main issues you hear come up again and again? So the issues are very diverse, of course. And I would say there are as many issues as there are people in the world. But of course, we see some topics that are there um, more often as others, such as, for example, now with the pandemic, of course, loneliness is a very big topic. But also relational questions, family issues, relationship issues, addiction, depression, other kinds of psychological illnesses. So it's really a very broad picture of human beings mm -hmm. that can just call about any issue. And why does talking help? <laughs> it really helps to have someone care about what you think. So that's the one part. But of course, also talking already structures your thoughts. Sometimes if you say it out loud, you get new ideas, you get new impulses by just your own thoughts. And then it, of course, helps even more if there's someone who really cares about what you say, who really listens and really wants to help you. Are people able to come and help on this phone line? Um, so, because, what what you mean by come? So I mean, are other people able to volunteer their time to help with your phone line? I'm yeah. thinking about the Samaritans line, for example, where you have yeah. volunteers coming. Yeah, so we rely on our amazing team of volunteers who do the phone line and really offer their free time to listen to other people. And that's a huge investment and we are so glad to have them. Yes, it's an investment, but also how do you as a volunteer protect yourself when you're hearing very, very hard conversations mm. 
one after another. Mm-hmm. How do you guard yourself from not going down? Mm-hmm. This is a very important issue because you have to be well in order to be able to help others. So we train our volunteers in a very long training first of one and a half years where we go through very different topics first to get to know yourself better, to get to know your borders better. So which topics do I feel comfortable with? Which topics should I maybe be a bit more careful about? And Um, Then, of course, this continues through the entire volunteering because you always have to take good care of yourself and, um, yeah, make sure that you are doing well so that you are able to help others. Mm -hmm. And how much does it matter the language you speak in? Because we're talking about emotional issues here. And, uh, of course, most people are able to talk about their own emotions in their mother tongue. Mm Also, many of us don't have the range of vocabulary necessary Mm -hmm. to even find a word for our emotions. Yeah, that's true. So it's not only the language that you speak, but it's really also how used you are to talk about emotions. And uh, sometimes it can also help if there's someone who helps put the words on what you are actually feeling. And that's also why we think it's so important to also have it in English, because um, if you for example, live in Luxembourg as an expat and you maybe do speak French or German, but not well enough to actually talk about what is going on. It can really help if you can express yourself in English. I want to bring Arno in here because uh, when we were chatting just earlier in the in the kitchen here at RTL, you asked a wonderful question, Arno, which I noted, which is, are we more open as individuals nowadays? Are we more open and able to talk about things Have I have I worded your question correctly? Yes, that's correct. It could also be that we are more open to talk about our problems, mm-hmm. also to accept and help. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you find this? Um, it's very hard to answer, of course, because we do, don't know why people call. But what we see is that talking about mental issues, talking about mental health is really encouraging people to find the courage to talk to someone about what they are feeling, what they are experiencing. So also being able to be here today and talk to you is something that I hope will help um, to show people that they don't have to feel ashamed, that they can really just talk about what is going on. And sometimes it can be a first very courageous step to talk to someone anonymously. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you must tell us the phone line. What's the number? So the number is the same as for our Luxembourgish line. It's 45, 45, 45. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, we'll add that to, to the show notes as well. I wanted to ask you another question is, have you seen a certain demographic of society calling you a certain age range, male or female? Who calls the most? Um, I would say that we again see a very big range of people calling because we are there for adults. Of course, we see adults who are calling and also elderly people, of course. But there are people in every age range. There are males and females. And of course, we also see males still struggle more to talk about their emotions in society. So I can really encourage everyone to call and talk about whatever is going on. So really no issue is too big or too small to call. Mm -hmm. And just talking about some of those issues, how do you deal with somebody who talks about their loneliness? What do you Mm -hmm. encourage them to do? Mm -hmm. So mainly we are there to first understand their situation a bit better and try to find together what possibilities might suit them in a very well way. So we are not experts and give advice but we really see the caller is the expert of their life and we try encourage them find their strength find their resources and use them in a way that is appropriate to their life Mm -hmm. and another thing that i know you have calls about which is 
extremely hard to deal with on both sides of the line, suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. What do you do there for the person on the other end of the line? Mm -hmm. So it takes lots of courage to talk about suicidal ideas. So first of all, it's so important that if you have suicidal thoughts, you really talk to someone. So what we are doing there again is to really support the person in what they are going through and allowing them to talk about it and to really talk about the entirety of emotions to the intensity of emotions, because it's so important to have someone listening to the diversity of what is going on and trying to help you find ways that are your way that will help you dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Of course, we'll add on all of the, the notes to SOS Detresse and we're so grateful that you now are launching this line also available in English. So again, it's available on Wednesdays. From 11 in the morning until 11 in the evening. And the number is 45, 45, 45. Exactly. Well, Jessica, thank you and the team for so much fantastic work. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to bring you all back in now and just open up the conversation between everybody here and uh, turn back to dance. You were married to a dancer and you have a dancer daughter, I believe, Arno. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> correct. And so from your perspective, you've heard each other's conversations that have been completely diverse. What do you think of what Elizabeth's doing? I think it's it's very interesting also to, to reduce the the entry level for people by going to them, not waiting for them to, to come. Mm -hmm. I have experienced myself, people have a high... They are not very open to go to see dance, at least, despite that we are in Austria, very classical culture, but dance is not the main art form that people go to. And going to the people is definitely a good, a good thing to do. I'm thinking it might be the same in science, Arno. You should go and give your talk. It's not always so easy in science to explain, but your subject is quite easy to explain. Yes, and actually in Luxembourg we do this. There yeah. is the Fonds National de la Recherche. They organize Fiervat Forscher. So we go into schools. The schools can ask for scientists to come. They do it in German, French, English. And then uh, young pupils, 16, 17, 18 years of age, can ask questions how it is to be a scientist. And we have open days just... 10 days ago, there was an open day. At least 700 people come to see what we do with their taxpayers' money. It was very interesting, <laughs> to, talk. It was very interesting to talk to people. <laughs> well, you're all representations of taxpayers' money in different ways, in mm -hmm. fact. So mm -hmm. it, it's fantastic. And turning it around, what do you think of his work, Elizabeth? Well, I'm super impressed. I think we actually have more in common than we might think. I think art has a lot to do with science in terms of research, just that we research in completely different areas and our research just looks differently. So I'm very inspired by what you do, Arno. <laughs> I never even brought in the fact that you are adding nature into your mm. dance movement. How are you doing that? Well, you know, I'm quite uh, I'm quite into textures in general, like materials, sound textures, etc. And I love currently in a very nat natural place, nature place. And uh, I don't know, I just like, I love to sense nature, to feel the textures and just to see how that we can transform that into movement. And it also comes from that kind of thought that we, when we die, we go in our culture anyway into the earth often and our bodies becomes becomes earth or a flower starts growing out of our ribs and which is eaten by a cow which is then being again digested so i like this idea of the cy cycle of life and how actually there's a huge metamorphosis going on all the time and actually everything is so one so that's part of all my work in the dance 
that's what I'm tackling. Gosh, that, that's a, quite a philosophical thought there for a Friday morning. Oh my goodness, the metamorphosis of when we die and carry on. A lot of people can't deal with a concept, but it's nice that you're thinking of it as the yeah. cycle of life and the circle all as one. And also, uh, we didn't touch on it, but Tell us about the mental health of dancers. You touched on a little bit the fact that you have to be super strong as a dancer to withstand mm. everything that's been thrown at you in terms of direction, uh, the, the stress on your bodies and the mental stress as well. So do you feel that dancers have ever had the need to turn to something like SOS Detresse? Oh, yes, I think so. Especially because it's a profession. You're not allowed to be weak, to be honest with you. Mm. <laughs> like that, especially as we were speaking about the female dancers, there are far too many female dancers out. Also, I don't want to say there are too many, but there are just incredibly many dancers out there. And like the mental health is just completely not discussed at all, uh, especially when you're young. And I think just because you have to enter in this profession at such a young age, you're not prepared at all. But do you think that's changing? Because we have so yeah. much conversations around mental yeah, health. Yeah, definitely. I think also there are psychologists um, focus for dance, but I think again, or specialized in dance. However, I think you know the financial aspect of it like i think a lot of people can't afford it unless you're part of a structure so but i think it's wonderful that you bring this up because i think it should have more visibility definitely and on the point of affording it i have mm -hmm. to turn to you because you work as a psychologist here in mm -hmm. luxembourg and as it stands today still and we've heard it in the news as well as sasha over many weeks uh, just recently you know still psychologists are not reimbursed by the cns so mm -hmm. a person cannot go to see a psychologist mm -hmm. and with our health service here it will not be reimbursed mm -hmm. And that is why I think it is so important to have other services where you can get help. And for example, SOS Tetres has the other advantage that you don't have to wait because, of course, waiting times with services with psychologists are also a big issue. And you can just call us and talk now. So, And just talk us through the movement and that conversation that seems to be going on uh, negatively with the government and the CNS. Why is it that we can't have access that is reimbursed by CNS, our health service here in Luxembourg? I'm, I'm very much afraid. I don't know. I'm not an expert enough to know the details of why there is no reimbursement coming in, in place. Of course, I would wish that there would be reimbursement so that more people can get therapy, more people can get counselling. And I also know and have to stress that we are not a replacement for therapy. We can maybe be an addition. We can maybe be until there is an open space for therapy. But it's not the same because we don't have a follow up because of the anonymity. Mm -hmm. And just as a sideline to the conversation of SOS Detresse, for those people who would like more formal therapy, mm -hmm. can you talk to us about the different forms of therapy available to people? Because sometimes mm -hmm. people are very confused between psychologists, psychiatrists, mm -hmm. psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are, um, I think, three categories, psychologists, psychotherapists and psychiatrists. And psychiatrists are already being reimbursed by the CNS. They are medical trained doctors with a specialized training in psychiatry. And then you have psychologists like me who have studied psychology and can also offer therapy if they have an additional training in psychological psychotherapy. So there's also medical psychotherapy that might already be reimbursed depending on um, the psychiatrist offering it. Um, and I think the easiest way to get help when you maybe financially are struggling is to go to an institution. Like, for example, the um, Ligue de la Santé Mentale, or there are other um, associations that offer help also for people who don't have the money to pay for therapy. 
Thank you so much, Jessica, for, for opening that up to us. And of course, I assume, Arno, <laughs> that scientists never have any mental health issues, but that's, of course, not the case at all. What's it like being a scientist? What's the pressure like on a scientist at your level? Um, what pressure do we have? We, we, of course, we are supposed to publish uh, articles. We are supposed to finish our PhD in time. We are supposed to get a postdoc position, to write more articles, <laughs> to finally maybe get a tenure track position to be become a professor in five, eight, nine years. So there's a continuous stress in kind of in the system. And like many other professions, dancers, uh, um, my experience is that scientists are perfect and they have no problems. <laughs> so uh, we, are also, we, are not, we are not weak, says a man, until you experience sometime in your life that of course you are weak, that of course you need help. And mm -hmm. uh, that's, to my experience, very often around your 40s birthday, around that age. And then you learn about yourself. Then first you learn to protect yourself. And then later in career, you can try and help to protect your young colleagues. Also by simply being showing your own vulnerability, saying that you have been in a difficult situation in life, mm -hmm. that you maybe had a burnout or beginning of a burnout, just mentioning it to young colleagues helped them to feel themselves better. Yeah, mm -hmm. and to try to put in place steps so that that burnout doesn't happen, because I know that is something that mm -hmm. is being spoken about more and more in Luxembourg, and I'm sure you see it a lot, Jessica. Yeah, of course. And what is very, very important is on the one hand to hear that other people are going or have been going through that as well, that you are not the only one experiencing it. And the earlier you talk about it, the easier it is to get help and to actually do something about it so that it doesn't get worse. Some people don't even realize they're in a burnout. Yeah. What are the symptoms of burnout? So um, there are um, three big categories, which are exhaustment, mainly re in relation to work. And now I would have to look up the other two, but it's um, very negative mood and um, low energy are definitely a part of burnout. And but perhaps anxiety might be in there too. Or anxiety can be linked to it, but it's not a criterion of, of burnout. Yeah. 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 And, and actually, just when you were mentioning the, the pressure to produce papers, Arno, I know that this is an issue for women in science because they often want to or have to and want to take time out when they're having families at a time when you're in your tenure track or you need to be producing papers. And I'm not sure the science world has found a good way to counteract this. No, I think not really. It, it depends a bit. Luckily, we at least we are not a, let's say, hardcore university type like institution. Uh, so, and I personally, for example, in interviews, I, I look more on the fire in a person to do something rather than whether he, he or she has five publications more than the other one. And in some countries you, you get a kind of bonus for having been at home. That's for both men and women. If you take parental leave, you, you get, so to say, virtual publications added to your, to your story. And I understood one time they do it in Switzerland. So, but there's a lot to do yeah, and, and, and it's difficult for, for, for both parents if they want to stay at home. Yeah, it's, it's extremely hard and it's not just, of course, I mean, in fact, I haven't even thought about pregnancy as a dancer, but that's another world entirely. How does yeah, that completely. function? Well, uh, <laughs> difficult. I, say, yeah. I think, well, if you have a partner who is financially stable and who supports you a lot, I think that's definitely possible. But uh, in general, very few of my friends have babies and continue to be a dancer. So afterwards, their career is just... 
Yeah, or, well, even to be a freelance dancer and to have a child at the same time or when it, it gets sick and then you can't work and then the premieres the next day is like, you know, the pressure of the job. It's difficult, I'd say. Some people can make it happen, but they have a huge support system around them, I think. Well, thank you all so much. Have you any final thoughts? Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, thank you. <laughs> It's such a pleasure to have you all here. And what I always love about bringing people from completely different backgrounds is that you all have a base connection. We all have mm. a base connection. So it's always my honor to, to hear your stories, your life stories so far. Plenty more to come before we end up in the earth and flowers are growing out of us and cows are <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but but thank you all for your time and uh, good luck to you, Elisabeth. Uh, thank you. Encourage everybody listening to go and see your show at the Echternach at Trifolien next weekend. Arno, congratulations with your spin-off and thank you so much for all of the work you're doing, which means that animals no longer need to be tested on. And so grateful for SOS Tres now being available in English to our listeners. Uh, and as you mentioned to me prior to this show, the English speaking community here is not just people who have English as a mother tongue, which is one of your considerations. Definitely. So anyone who feels comfortable to talk in English, please call. Thank you all very much and have a wonderful weekend to all of my great listeners. As always, if you have any stories, anything you'd like to share with us, just get in touch and it will be delight always to hear from you and your ideas. Have a lovely weekend. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.